Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Dr. Rosenberg, thank you so, so much for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, now this is, we could talk about so many different aspects of what you do, but I decided that we're going to do what I think people experience most commonly. Okay. So having a baby, Mm -hmm. right? Or having a child in the hospital, often for, you know, relatively routine things or relatively minor things. But Mm -hmm. even something that we might think is minor is not minor to the child or the parents. Oh, that's definitely true and important to keep in mind. And we try to do that every time. Exactly. So I want to thank you so much for this amazing opportunity to get an insider's view from a hospitalist. And I have to say, I've never interviewed a hospitalist before. So Mm -hmm. I'd like you to start by explaining what is a hospitalist, please. Oh, yes. So um, a hospitalist is a hospital-based physician. Um, They can be for adults or children, basically. I'm a pediatric hospitalist, which means I'm board certified general pediatrician. And then I am actually also boarded in pediatric hospital medicine. That's not necessary. Um, But it's a pediatrician who, instead of focusing their practice outpatient, where they see patients for continuity of care, for vaccines, for preventative care, for sick care, you know, all the outpatient things that you would go to your pediatrician's office for. Instead of that, um, we are hospital-based pediatricians um, who focus on the care of children in the what's called the acute care setting, like people might call it the floor or the ward, children mm-hmm. who are admitted, um, who are a little bit sick or have a surgery, but it's not so much care that they need to go to an intensive care unit. That's a different specialist or a cardiac intensive care unit or the NICU. People have heard of the NICU. That's the neonatal intensive care unit. Those are all staffed by intensivists who are also board certified pediatricians and specialize in those critical care areas, we specialize in the care of inpatient uh, pediatrics that is not critical care. Right. I'm interested that you also work with newborns because I did not know that hospitalists were there. I thought that would be like Mm -hmm. just neonatologists or... Oh, sure. Yeah. So uh, it varies by hospital. Um, Some hospitals have a only have uh, community pediatricians or uh, those pediatricians come and see the babies that are coming to their practice. That's a pretty common model. We actually do have some of that. Other hospitals are um, have just hospital-employed pediatricians staffing those nurseries. And sometimes, in the case of our hospital, we're really unique in that I am a I take care of children who are acutely ill, but also take care of well newborns. That's what we would call those babies. So neonatologists will take care of babies in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. They don't generally take care of well babies. They specialize in babies who are having a harder time transitioning um, and who have other problems. But we take care of the healthy babies who are basically 35, 36 weeks and up who are doing well of a certain weight and are planning to probably go home with their their moms and the rest of their families in one to two to three days. 
Right. I think one big change is that it used to be that most pediatricians would do that as part of their pediatric practice. They'd have their outpatient practice and then they'd come to the hospital and see the newborns. Right. Exactly. And that is still true. From We have a couple practices that still do that. Um, for some pediatricians, depending on where you are, um, it may not work well with the office schedule or the demand outpatient is so high that it's just it's just doesn't make sense for them to be coming to the nursery and they're perfectly happy to outsource that or trust the hospital pediatrician to see that the babies on their behalf. And then they'll see the babies within one to two days of discharge. Right, right. We used to, for my practice, we were affiliated with numerous hospitals and we would all take turns going. And it was, it took an enormous amount of time mm, yes. to do that. And then you had to deal with the electronic records and each one had a different one and all of their, <laughs> right. you know, exactly, exactly. It became just unsurmountable, really. Ex- uh, definitely true. And, you know, each hospital has their protocols and their guidelines and the way we do things. And we're really efficient. That's the nice thing about hospital based pediatricians is okay, we do not have the um, longitudinal or continuity of care of community pediatricians. And that's the beauty of having your, that is the gold standard is to have a community pediatrician. At the same time, it's hard for community pediatricians who are taking care of kids and families day in, day out in the outpatient setting to keep up sometimes with some of the complexities of acute care. It used to be, um, you know, decades ago that, uh, kids could be in the hospital for weeks and they wouldn't even have their families there. That's like in the 1960s and 50s. And then we moved into the parents would be there. And then then we moved into kids just not staying as long in the hospital. There's a move to get kids back home as soon as po- as soon as safely possible. And we in the as hospital-based pediatricians uh, pride ourselves on our knowledge about when a child and family is ready to go back home. And so we have that skill set. And we also keep up to date with all the acute illnesses. Um, remember during COVID, uh, that was kind of a quote unquote new illness. And we didn't right. really know what acute COVID was. And the hospital-based pediatricians were tapped in. We were listening every week to our inpatient specialists and we knew exactly what to do. And then when we had um, this post-COVID complication called MIS-C, which we can get into later, but um, that is this multi-system inflammatory disease that comes sometimes after COVID in that first wave it did. Um, And we were, again, we're on top of it. You know, that would be hard for a community pediatrician who sees one case in six months to keep up with it, whereas we were seeing three a week. So much easier for us to do that. On the other hand, I do, I do, uh, do rely heavily on the community pediatricians because they have the relationship with the family. And I call patients pediatricians all the time. That's amazing. And we're going to get back to that, but I want to go back to the babies because I sure. feel like you have two worlds that we're going to talk about tonight. Mm-hmm. Right? There's also the third world of, that you do, which is the the um, children who are fragile and medically complex. We're not yes. going to do that. We're going to no, just no stick with the things I said. So let's start with the babies. Mm-hmm. I want to know what kind of things you as a hospitalist get involved in. What do you have to deal with? Oh, well, we get the privilege and pleasure of seeing mostly very happy families. Uh, it's the one part of the hospital where there's just much more joy than than worry or anything else. So it's actually such a highlight that um, the 
thing we do most is do the first checkover of the baby after the nurses do their job. And we work together with the nurses. And then we do a full head to toe exam. We get the mom's medical history and we just look for any signs that there might be anything we need to follow up. And happy to say most of the time, things have been followed and we're good to go. And then we can help the new parents if they're new or if this is not their first baby, they're new to this baby. Um, we help them figure out the best way to feed this particular baby. Or if it's a brand new family and they've never had a baby before, we will provide a lot of what we call anticipatory guidance. You know, parents will ask things like, oh, he's sneezing. Does he have a cold? These sorts of things. And then we reassure them. Or if the baby's spitting up, you know, we can decide if that's serious spit up or and vomiting, or it's just normal baby reflux. All babies do that. Um, and we also look, we view ourselves as public health people, actually, because we look mm -hmm. for um, things that don't happen all that often. But as I said, because of our volume, we know very quickly when a baby's exam or behavior isn't correct and, and we need to get extra help. Like, oh, we, we check every baby's hips to make sure they don't have hip dysplasia. And if they do right away, we can get them, you know, an appointment in the next couple of weeks with a specialist. So we're looking for things that are not that common per a person, but at the community level, if we have something that happens in one in a thousand babies, we have 6,000 babies a year. So someone in our group will, will see six of those. And so that's a lot more than other people might because our volume of babies is so high. Right, right. And the pediatrician might not see that. Uh, they usually will like the experienced ones, but for us, because we see, <laughs> all see 20, 25 babies a, bit, a day. So I'm just getting in a lot of babies. Um, and right. the pediatricians are, the community pediatricians are amazing and they will totally pick it up as well. We happen to, have, um, just because we're part of the hospital, help uh, work on the guidelines about what to do if a baby's blood sugar is low or, you know, what's the recommended schedule for getting hepatitis B. And we work together with the community pediatricians quite well. And the nice thing for us is that we are in the hospital and really familiar with the hospital um, systems. So our, the medical director of the nursery works with the nursery nurse manager. And so they work together. And so we come help to come up with the guidelines as well. Right. What I meant by they don't see it is I'm thinking about what you're saying about the volume of what you see and the oh, hospital yes. base of what you see. I'm thinking back to my residency, you know, residents get all this experience in inpatient and mm -hmm. then they leave if they go to outpatient. It's a very different experience. That's right. Yes, that's right. And there's so much information to stay current in. Mm -hmm. So it yes. does make sense to have a hospitalist where you are constantly, you know, have your finger on the pulse of what's going on mm -hmm. in the hospital level. Yes. So I, mm -hmm. What kind of things come up in the newborn nursery that might be a challenge? What kind of things come up that are a little bit maybe you have some controversies with some families or some struggles? Like, let's talk about the hepatitis B. We're going to only talk about that one vaccine and then we're not going to do any more vaccine talk. That's fine. <laughs> sure. And yeah, the yeah. vitamin K while we're at it, which is not a vaccine, but. Yes. No, it's a vitamin. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, listen, there. Are, everyone has, it's your baby, right? So people always want to do what's best for their baby. And we come right. from that. Like people are just, this is what they want for their child. And we view ourselves as educators as well about what we know about based on science. So the science tells us that hepatitis B 
which is people think of it as something that's, you know, related to blood or sexual transmission, but it turns out hepatitis B is this weird virus um, that is preventable. Um, the transmission is preventable and actually it can live on toothbrushes, which I did not know. <laughs> so uh, anyone can basically transmit hepatitis B if they're in your home environment a lot. Um, and most people are screened, but at a population level, we know that uh, people can actually get hepatitis B, you know, during their pregnancy, if they were negative before, or someone in their house, you know, could in their household or they're regularly in contact with might have hepatitis B. And so it's so easy to just get the hepatitis B vaccine in the hospital ad admission. And then you've just started the process. So this is a recommendation from the CDC that all babies get what's called a birth dose of hepatitis B vaccine. Um, some populations have higher rates of hepatitis B than others, um, but this is a state uh, recommendation as well. So we are measured about about that. Um, so we do recommend that. Some families want to wait till they are seen by their pediatrician, which is an option. Um, but we do want to make sure every baby does get their hepatitis B vaccine as soon as right. possible. I think it's a good idea for expectant parents to read up in it beforehand so they're not taken aback. Correct. You know, um, yes. In the hospital. And the other thought I had in terms of transmission is there are so many ways other than through, you know, actual drug use or mm -hmm. sex, um, especially now that we have, unfortunately, so much drug abuse in the community, that means mm. needles mm -hmm. around. And I've had patients accidentally step on one or, you mm. know. Yeah. And even diabetes, right? Like if there's someone has their, you know, they're checking their glucose, that's blood as well. But mm -hmm. it can be tra right. transmitted through saliva, I do, which I did not really know. Right. So. Well, right. You can have that with biting. So I've definitely had that situation where a child was in daycare and another mm. child was a hepatitis carrier mm. Mm -hmm. and bit another child mm. who yeah. wasn't vaccinated. So, I mean, these things sound weird and rare. Mm. And, you know, I yeah. think a lot of parents feel that that risk is so, so, so low. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's interesting too, because that's how I, as a parent and, and everyone weighs their decisions on right. everything. What's your risk What's your risk of not doing it versus your risk of doing it? You know, people have perceptions about what's the risk to the baby if we give this. This vaccine is terribly safe. <laughs> There's really no, right. no anything with this vaccine. Um, and obviously we give it to, you know, babies um, and you do need three of them. And uh, getting an extra one doesn't matter. So some parents are worried about that as well. Like, oh, I know at the pediatrician's office, they give a combination that may include the hepatitis B vaccine. And they're worried they might get an extra hepatitis B vaccine. That is fine. The beauty of getting it in the hospital is that you're not going to get those first vaccines, usually sometimes till about two months. So you've added just that much extra protection for your child, because once you have hepatitis B, there's no cure. It, um, so, and it can lead to um, liver disease. So why not just avoid that with a safe vaccine? Right, right. So when you have these conversations and someone says they don't want it, I'm just curious how you handle mm -hmm. that. Um, well, again, it's their baby. There's, that's the option. I just present the science as, mm -hmm. you know, the CDC is recommends that all babies get it in the hospital just to minimize any chance that your baby could become a chronic hepatitis B carrier. And then we leave it at that. It's, we always figure out what 
what is the family really interested in doing? And, you know, our job is to partner with the family. Um, again, we can only present the science. Right. I think it's a good idea, like I said before, for parents to, you know, look into it before. You can have a prenatal, by the way, with your pediatrician mm, and discuss right. this. That's mm-hmm. one option. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have it, you can come back to your pediatrician and get it down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a very strong believer in partnering with the parents and respecting their viewpoint and not mm-hmm. putting pressure. So that that should not be Mm-hmm. There should be no pressure for this. I think we both agree on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a recommendation and a lot of right. people just do it, um, but it's not the one that, yes, of course. So I would, I did it for my own kids. I would totally recommend right. that. Um, right. But if this is going to be the one thing that a parent's uncomfortable with, then okay. I they mean, at the end right. of the day, they're taking their babies home. Um, right. So. Right. And you can also ask your pediatrician, is there hepatitis B in this vaccine? Did you uh-huh. make sure you don't have to get an extra? It doesn't have to happen. Oh, sure. Different right. And even it if it by does, itself, it can be yeah. in combination and then you can make sure. Right. Uh-huh. Right. Um, so what about the vitamin K? Yeah. So vitamin K is one of those things that uh, is important <laughs> that I will. Right. I, I that does the need to be given. Then, right. Yes, exactly. So some, <laughs> waiting I mean, for that some, might not be as benign. Right. So the risk is is real with vitamin K deficiency, and there's a couple ways. Vitamin K is a little bit of a complicated vitamin in some ways for newborns. So newborns naturally are not born with um, high levels of vitamin K. It's not transferred well through the placenta. It's really not transferred that well through breast milk. And it's just one of those things that we always like to think like nature made this perfect package and it really does. Um, but we know ways to, pre- prob- you know, nature usually does it great, but of course children are born with different diseases and we don't know that till later on for some kids. And so again, when I speak about public health, one of the things is we know is that so many kids in a population will have um, vitamin K deficiency. Um, There is um, different forms of it that can be temporary around the time of birth. It can show up a little bit later. um, And then it can show up around two to three months as well. These are diseases called hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. And uh, this literally makes the difference between a baby who could have been completely healthy and a baby who gets a bleed in their brain and then is neurodevastated and never becomes a neurotypical child um, when they had the chance to do that. And that would just be awful to think that there was something that could have prevented that from happening. Um, We know that vitamin K uh, does need to be given in the way we give it, which is um, through a needle as opposed to by mouth. Babies do not absorb it well by mouth. Um, The amount you need by mouth and the frequency is a lot. It's weeks and weeks of an oral supplement. In Europe, they were doing it and actually are now turning back to what we do. Yes, in some cases, because it turns out at the population level, it's not, no, no one can keep up with the regimen. It's actually quite a lot <laughs> for parents to give vitamin K to a newborn orally. It just ends up being a lot of work and it's very hard for tired parents to remember to do it. And it's not as effective as well. It doesn't even prevent all the three, the three different forms. It only works on one of them. So it's not really 
equivalent at all. Right, I think it's, I mean sort of, but I think that it's because of the absorption rate that there's one where it doesn't it, you can't absorb right. it anyway, so you cannot right. absorb it through your guts. So you must right. have to Exa- muscular. Exactly. That's really yeah. for the earliest kind. So um we and any baby who's ill, um, you know, there is there is this new state law that um states that no longer would would families be referred to child protection as we might have done in the past for refusing vitamin K. Um, And so that has given some messages to families that, oh, this is a funny way of thinking, but I think some communities have thought, oh, well, it's not as important. I can just do that. You know, it's so frustrating because mm-hmm. I hate mandatory stuff. I really, <laughs> really hate it. I don't think it it fits in with my let's partner, let's learn together, mm-hmm. you know, let's trust you to make good decisions for your child with education. Mm-hmm. And then you do this and it backfires in a mm-hmm. sense, right? Yeah, yeah, in some ways. I mean, I think there's many different ways that this has, you know, not not been helpful, but I think it was just the sheer volume. I, I really feel like the state was just at a loss about what to do about this. It's unfortunate because um, there's been an erosion of trust for there's, various there's, reasons. Right, yeah. there's an erosion of trust, but it it definitely erodes further when you know public health acts like you know um, what's the what's the word big daddy? What's the <laughs> there's a word for this? I can't remember what it is. Mm, right, mm-hmm. like you know, mm-hmm. acts paternalistic and takes mm-hmm. over or just tries to, you know, mandate or force things on people. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's important not to, mm-hmm. but if we're talking about risk benefit equation, mm-hmm. then why would anybody be afraid of the vitamin K? What, what is the perceived risk here? I, d- I don't really know. I mean, it's, I, I mean, I've asked various people who, who families who aren't comfortable in the hospital, um, giving vitamin K and they uh, sometimes don't have a good reason, like a reason they could, not that it's not a good reason to them, but they may not be able to verbalize it. Something they've heard, a neighbor told them, and then I'm presenting the science behind it. It's safe. It prevents three different forms of bleeding in your baby's first few months of life. It's especially important if your baby's going to have a bris, uh, if having any procedure, wouldn't it be nice to know that this is not going to be uh, anything harmful, <laughs> um, right. you know, and then people will say, oh, well, it's not natural. Right. But I think then, that one big piece is it's not natural. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, and then and when it, it comes to... with a needle, sure. we already talked about the oral yeah. not being as good. So, you know, I've heard in like in Britain, they were giving that as a second option just to try to work with people. Sure. And then at the end of the day, it's just not even doing it. So that's why we don't really, we don't offer that option. It's not actually FDA approved in the US right. to give oral. So we, I legally like wouldn't do that. Um, it and I know bioequivalent. It, it really isn't bioequivalent. No, it not at all. as effective. Right. It's not as effective. And even, even if you take it properly, it's not as effective. And furthermore, no one even takes it properly um, because it's so difficult. And so but what about, what about, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you, but what about women who are pregnant taking vitamin K? Can they supplement their way up that way? They cannot. It does not really go through the placenta. I've heard, actually, I heard a pediatrician tell me that the other day, that there, it's actually not, does not go through the placenta that well. That's the whole problem. And you can't say that giving it through the breast milk would work early because. Right. Right. It won't be high enough. Yeah. So that's really why we recommend it. And it's, we've been giving it for years and years. Back to that gut. I'm just thinking it through out loud because I'm, I'm trying to remember what I read a while ago about this. Yeah. Um, Is that if you have that same component, that same subset where it's not absorbed, Mm -hmm. it won't be absorbed in the baby. 
Correct. Even and the the mother, even if the mother takes a vitamin K supplement after birth to try to pump up her vitamin K, I mean, I've mm -hmm. seen studies on that, like she can mm -hmm. to some degree in some mm -hmm. cases, but you know, you're talking about still missing. Sure. But why risk it? Right. right. And then right. the beauty of the way that we give it, although sure, it happens immediately right after birth. And then honestly, the baby's not in pain from it. There's very few reactions I've seen to it. And again, I've seen hundreds and thousands of babies. Um, and there's, and it's not just me. It's not my experience. It's the science and the amount of adverse, you know, events. So we know that it's many hospitals and many babies across the country and across the world. And the, by giving it via a needle um, in the way we give it, um, I am intramuscular, then it's sort of sits there as a depot um, and it's a fat absorbed uh, vitamin. Vitamin K is one of those. And so it kind of is slowly working, doing its magic for the next couple of months, protecting your baby. Um, that shot lasts maybe 10 seconds, if if that, and then the vitamin just sits there and kind of does its work over time, slowly making up for what's, what's missing in the in the blood coagulation cascade. And is this something that the baby outgrows, even the babies that have this, which are, of course, a subset? Sure. Um, well, there are um, there are many more babies that have this temporary low vitamin K than babies who have a permanent um, or something that lasts more than three to four months of life of a lack of vitamin K or some of those coagulate, anything related to that coagulation process. Because what we're talking about, vitamin K is a substance that's needed to help blood clot. So I probably should have said that earlier, sorry, um, which is why it's so important. Um, and uh, most kids will then get enough vitamin K they can absorb it by the time there's so many months. And there's very few kids who do have hemophilia. Right. It's not related to vitamin K. And, and those we would disorder. Or other bleeding disorders that we'll, we would pick up, hopefully. Right. 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 So, yeah, that, that's hard. What happens when a parent says no to that now? What do you do? Uh, again, always first thing is to partner and right. understand, like, what... Oh, tell me a little bit more about that is what I would usually ask. And, you know, what have you done for previous kids, if you have any? Um, and then they'll talk about it. And I do the best I can to see where they're coming from. Um, if there are cases where a baby is quite ill, um, if a baby is oozing um, at their umbilical cord stump, if we have any concern that the baby has a big um, swelling, a lot mm. of babies have some scalp swelling right. um, after birth, um, which is normal. Um, but if it seems to be more than normal, uh, that's usually just fluid. Sometimes it's a little blood in the scalp. It's not in the brain, but, you know, babies come out a little cone head sometimes or they have a little bump and that will go away. But again, there's a possibility that if it's a bigger swelling, we don't want it to keep going because we're missing the coagulation, the clotting factors right. that we need. So in those cases, the state does, the state law does rule that the pediatrician or the hospital can say, really, for the safety of your baby, we must give this vitamin. Just as, you know, you've come to the hospital to deliver your child. If your baby stopped breathing, we would obviously do something to help your baby breathe. And, um, you know, and if your baby had a bacteria in their blood, of course, we would give them antibiotics. And so we, we have to treat any active bleeding. And so in those cases, we would 
we will just do what we need to do. Uh, but we'd really rather not. We'd rather partner right. with the parents. Right. And again, back to preparing before your baby is born to learn more about this. I think I'm going to put a link to a um, an article I sent you from, I think it's called evidencebirth.com. Oh, um, okay. It was, it was a really nice article, which really went through it in great detail. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I'm going to put that out there for parents. And I want to move on to the older kids because we might end up in the newborn nursery for too long. Yeah, sure. To get to the older kids. Mm-hmm. So I think I want to focus on, you know, there's so many things we could talk about. We could talk forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I want to talk about um, of the aspect of the older kids is um, pain control. You know, mm-hmm. what it, that, that's a thing that parents are really you know, concerned about their child's in the hospital and, you know, they may be having a hard time mm-hmm. um, with pain or anxiety from procedures, or et cetera. There's so many mm-hmm. components to that. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say was the second part, which is the biggest concern that families have hands down. And this happens to almost every child in the hospital because a good chunk of the time they're getting blood work done. Right. right? And again, the needles, no one loves needles, but Unfortunately, you know, in 50 years, I hope there are no needles and that we can do blood work by scanning someone's arm. Like that's oh, what amen, I hope. Amen. That or sooner would be great because it seems a little medieval to me. However, this is how we still do it. And so um, we uh, this is what how we get all our information right now um, as, you know, as old as it seems. And so um that is the hardest thing for many kids and and for parents to watch their baby or their child, you know, having a needle placed in them because it's not as if it's an adult where it's, they're almost always going to get it. The person drawing the blood. Sometimes if you have a really chubby, chubby baby, it can happen that it's mm. like hard for someone to, you know, find the vein. Usually they're very good depending on where you are. Um, but sometimes they miss and then they have to try again. And then the baby's crying again. And then that makes the parents upset. And the baby knows that mom is upset and then no matter what they're linked. Right. So now everyone's getting upset and then the baby is clenching down and then it just, it's just, no one loves it. And the person doing it doesn't love it. So obviously best is to go to a place where there are a lot of pediatric experts who draw blood on children um, and play can place IVs. But that is our number one complaint actually um, in terms of pain um, is actually procedural pain. Mm-hmm. when patients are getting IVs or blood drawn. And we do a lot when we can to try and avoid that. Um, there's a b- lot of creams we can apply if it's not an emergency that kind of numb the skin. We have things that distract older infants and kids because if their mind is looking somewhere else and engrossed in something, they won't be as focused on the, the procedure that's happening to them. Um, we also use things called buzzy, which I think I can say that that's like a pretty common thing. Um, it mm-hmm. just does vibration at the site um, and it kind of confuses the pain receptors with all the vibration. And, and that's only for certain age groups. So we use that. You can use ice. You can use all sorts of things to kind of distract the pain receptors as well as distract the mind. Um, so we actually really encourage in infants that babies nurse, or that's what I would do if I were drawing the blood, <laughs> that they're nursing or feeding at the time, because that's very soothing. And then if the blood draw can be done at that time, sometimes we'll use a little couple drops of sugar, actually, and that overrides the pain 
an anxiety response. That's what they'll do in the NICU, for example, where babies are maybe too sick to be feeding. So they'll just put a couple, it's called sweeties, or it's just, it's really just sugar. Um, and it doesn't do anything to interfere with breastfeeding, but it distracts again, the baby. So that they're not as their body and their brain is not as focused on all that pain or anxiety because people used to think that babies couldn't feel it, but obviously mm -hmm. they do feel it and that there are long-term effects and babies who are in the, our NICU graduates, meaning they've lived in the NICU for some time of their lives. You know, they, they do have some different pain pathways because they have had so many procedures. So what we do to avoid that again is we, do try and bundle things. So we don't get labs every three hours. We say, this is the only blood draw for today. What do people need? You know, get that done or try. And if they can in older children, when you're placing the IV, also draw the blood work at the same time or draw the blood work off the IV if you can. It's usually not possible, but we do try. Right. What would you say to parents to help them? Because it's so hard for the parents as well. Mm, and you mentioned mm -hmm. before that the parents, how they feel and how they act, interact with how the child or baby feels. Yeah. So I think it just depends on the parents a lot of times. Mm -hmm. uh, some, you know, I, I've done some research in this area, especially looking around procedure, um, both procedural pain, but also post-operative pain. Mm -hmm. And uh, really, it does seem that some people are just a little more anxious around medical things than others. Mm -hmm. um, and some people are less so. And the anxiety of parents absolutely spreads to the child. So if you are a person who is terribly, terribly anxious, um, you might not want to be there when if, if the blood work needs to be drawn. However, if you're able to say, I know this needs to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to be the comfort for my baby. I'm able to do that right now. Then that's really wonderful. Um, I'll never forget that time. I used to help teach this actually. And I brought my son um, when he was like five to teach the pediatric residents how to do patient and child centered IVs and procedures. And so one of the ways, the best ways is really is to just give a hug, like have your, if the child's the right size, of course, mm -hmm. like face you. And then the blood work can be done, you know, on one of the arms behind you. Um, or again, nursing, if it's like a young enough baby or sugar water or all these other things. Um, and then older kids, we have them distract themselves. But if a parent really feels that they're not sure they could be calm, then it might not be great for them to be there because the kid will know instantly how nervous the parent is. And it really causes like a, a cascade. Right. Right, right. Uh, the pediatrician I used to work with used to call it call and response. The <laughs> child would say, don't oh, make them stop, make them stop. And then the right. parent would say, oh, honey, I'll, I'll, they'll be over in just a few minutes. And <laughs> right, 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 right. Now. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And they're right. intentionally amplifying. Yeah. yeah. You know. and, they, and parents do feel bad. I mean, one of the yeah, things. Yeah, for sure. That, it's normal. Of course, you don't want to see your child suffering. And as the parent, you know that this needs to be done. I mean, it's not fun for anyone to be. No one wants to do that. Um, anything unnecessary um, in a child. We really try and avoid it, but we sometimes do need the information um, to make the next decision to get your child closer to home. So it's not, we don't get paid more personally. I personally, I've heard parents say things like that. Like you want to do more tests just for this and that? No, I really, 
Honestly, I promise you, it doesn't matter to me personally. I am getting what I need to help make the decision together with you about what's next best for your child. Um, I think one other thing that parents can do for school age kids or for bigger kids, you know, there's a lot of tablets. Obviously, people have their phones and that's not necessary, but even anything that's an activity that distracts the brain, not watching a video, but like, you know, pointing to something or um, anything that's actually interactive is much more distracting. So if mom is singing to baby or dad um, and they're talking to each other and telling stories, blowing bubbles, all these different things that we have special people called child life assistants who... Mm -hmm. Um, specialists, I shouldn't say this is a specialist, um, who have trained our staff. And in some cases, they're not always available, but if they, there's a particularly anxious situation, they will come and help um, be the person that helps be in charge of calming the child as well as the parent so that the person who's doing the procedure can focus on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to move on to pain control. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm not talking about pain during procedures. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the child is in the hospital and they're in pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yes. so I wanted to hear from you more about that. And, and also just your advice on how the parent could best advocate. Oh, sure. So that's, so parents know kids best. And what, when we're talking, so you mean like post-operative pain? Let's talk about post-operative pain. That, that's okay. a good yeah. specific example. Okay. So I would say that pain control is, uh, a goal, but it's not ever going to be controlled as to no pain, right? If someone has had their tonsils out, that is terribly painful. And no matter what we do, it's still going to be a little uncomfortable. There's, I mean, we, we could get rid of the pain, but then you would be sleeping for three days. So we're not going to do that. Um, so it's really pain management and kind of what I sometimes try to think about it is comfort. Like we'll say, we try and phrase things and like, what are we trying to get to? We're trying to get to comfort because we want to focus on the positive. Um, so things that are comfortable are things we should be seeking out. Um, and just to expect that pain will be there if you've had a surgery and the first 48 hours are always the hardest. And what we recommend any for any type of surgery, including brain surgery, um, is standing pain medication for the first 48 hours. This does not mean morphine. <laughs> it does not mean that. It means just Tylenol. Tylenol is great because it works for a long time on a lot of different receptors. And every four to six hours, we just give Tylenol what's called around the clock so that you can stay ahead of the pain. Some parents, even when we write for it that way, and when I say write for it, we ask the nurses to give it in that way in the hospital. Parents may at two in the morning say, you know what? He's sleeping. The sleep is more important than the pain control. That could be. Sometimes, however, if it's a really painful surgery, it's really better to just wake up very quickly, take the pain medicine, or take it in a different modality, like either through the IV if they have one or rectally if they don't want to wake the, a baby. And that way we just keep it at a steady state. So there's always some pain control. And then we build on top of that. Like if that's not enough, we'll add something else. And if a child has a different type of pain and they're able to verbalize that, or we can tell, there's different types of medicines. So parents, the best thing that parents can do is uh, ask about the expected pain stages, like 
you know, when does the pain go away? And it's almost always going to be, well, within two days, it starts to, you know, starts to improve. I um, mean, you can ask the surgeon that, the nurse, or even the hospitalist. As a pediatrician, I actually, our group takes care of all, all the surgical patients as well, along with the surgical team. And so we're experienced in that. So you can ask for the expectations. The other role for parents is to interpret. Unfortunately, the parents are the interpreters for the children, especially the younger children mm -hmm. or children with communication issues who are older. And so sometimes we, obviously we don't know what a child's pain score is. In babies, we have specific pain scales, but you know, some children based on their culture or what they've been told, I've seen eight-year-olds tell me that right after their appendix is out that, or right before the appendix is taken out and they're in a lot of pain, that they're fine. And they'll say that, but then I see them and they're lying there very stiffly and they will not move. They will not even move their head. They're very afraid to move their body. And then I ask them their pain score on a scale of zero to 10, um, if that's age appropriate. And they'll tell me it's like a one or two, but I know that's not true <laughs> because I can see they're trying very hard not to move. So I'll say, oh, what happens when you move? And they'll say, oh, well then it's this. And so parents know their children much better than I would, but I can see that sort of behavior. But parents know like, oh, he's not himself. He's not eating because he's in pain. Or mm -hmm. when he does that, that means she's in pain. And that's what you need to tell the nurse to say like, he's in pain. Is there some medicine we can give him? Right. You know, I, I know that there's a lot of pressure not to prescribe opiates if you don't need to mm -hmm. and not to mm -hmm. prescribe them for, for too long. So I think mm -hmm. it's a really important point that if you have standing medication, even something as simple as Tylenol, preventing it is better than treating it mm -hmm. when it builds up. Mm -hmm. But what can you tell us about the use of opiates in children? Oh, sure. So uh, I have a lot of parents. We, I don't have a lot of parents. There are a lot of parents, of course, who are concerned that their children may become you know, addicted. But hmm. for us, that is not really going to happen with the way that we prescribe them for outpatient. Um, the, I am not a pain specialist per se, but mm -hmm. uh, the anesthesiologists are. And they, we actually have an acute pain team where I work um, for pediatrics, not, not all hospitals have that. Um, but usually most pain is controlled by the way that we just discussed. Standing Tylenol, we know with this surgery, this is the level and type of pain. So we add on this, we add on that. This one gets, you know, IV Motrin. This one gets something else, depending on the surgery and the child. And we pretty much know what to expect. Opioids are hugely important. So some surgeries are so painful that it would be a terrible not to give a child opioids, like spine surgery. If someone has scoliosis repair, that is extremely painful and that you must give opioids. There's really no way to tolerate that type of pain without giving opioids, but we do it in a measured way. And we know that by day X, they won't really need opioids that much anymore. And it will be kind of as needed. So before you leave the hospital, we're not giving it around the clock the opioids, we just change it to as needed. And we also try to avoid giving opioids because it makes the belly like not move so well and you get mm. a little constipated. <laughs> so uh, we don't love that for the kids. It's pretty uncomfortable. Um, and so we sometimes use what's called an epidural uh, approach where people may remember that they may have used that during childbirth. Um, and we can Best use thing that. ever. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> some people get it. Some people, I mean, I've had it both ways. Sometimes right, there's no, not enough to, yeah. time and, right. um, and that's okay too, but it's a little different if you're a kid sitting there. So what, what children's hospitals will often do if they'll have pediatric anesthesiologists who will do nerve blocks if possible, like, which is non-opioid or just local pain medication that again, just like that vitamin K actually, but in, well, in a similar concept, but in a different body space, it kind of over time, you know, releases a small amount and the anesthesiologist can do that in the spinal area based on where a surgery is. So we do that for spinal surgery, or if someone has a chest um, malformation, they'll do something near the chest area. So there are a lot of ways that we're already thinking of avoiding opioids and the small amount that we give in the hospital is definitely well controlled and everyone's goal is to use what we call multimodal analgesia which is a fancy way of saying everything we can use like right not everything. just the yeah. use them as needed but not just them exactly and at the beginning we know we may need to use them more and then we change the doses and children process all medicines differently than adults, especially younger kids. So we give them different doses. And in adults, you know, the dose is like, okay, take 400 or 600 of this. But for kids, we do it by weight. So the amount of morphine we would give a baby or a child if we need to give it is weight-based. And we have a range. And we almost always start out at the lower end of the of that. And so we're not giving the baby the same amount that we would give a, an adult, right? We are doing it by their weight. So um, we're always trying to start as low as we can on the on the opioids, but sometimes we need it. And a child needs sleep as well. And if pain is keeping them up, then we need to add something. And if the Tylenol, the Motrin, the spasm medicine isn't doing it, then yes, we need to use the opioids. I'm wondering about the interrelationship of anxiety and pain. I'm thinking more in the not immediate, immediate post-op, like at the point that you're trying mm -hmm. to pull back on the medication, but mm -hmm. you're having trouble because the child is expressing so much pain. Right. That is a really great point. And the older the child, you know, well, it's true for everybody. Um, but that is a huge part of it. Again, one, what are the parents doing? If Are the parents getting nervous about it? But um, kids too are just like the an eight-year-old after their, you know, they've had their appendectomy and their appendix is gone and they should be getting out of bed and doing things, but they're so scared to move that um, they won't because they're afraid that it's going to hurt. So that's where we try and say moving as soon as possible, as early as possible is the best because the sooner you get moving, then that takes away the fear component. Like, oh, someone helped me to move. It was a little scary. And then I moved and now I'm okay. And the more we get back to being comfortable and back to your baseline, then the quicker you'll be out of the hospital and the less pain medicine you'll need. Because sometimes what happens is people will say they're in pain um, or parents will think a child is in pain or is crying, but really they're scared more than pain. So right. we do try and distract and see if it's anxiety or it's pain or it's pain, anxiety about pain. And we really try and work on both of those at the same time. And the brain is the best thing to, to use for both, actually. Um, right. I've so heard that pain is in the brain. 
it which isn't mean a brain. it's all in your head and it's fake. It's yeah. just, it can be very much affected by other things. A hundred percent. And distraction is really great. So what we say for older kids, I, I do some um, taking care of children preoperatively before big surgeries. And uh, for kids that are amenable, we talk about visualization and meditation and practicing that so that when you're getting nervous that you can you know, think about your favorite vacation and the smells and sounds and work on things like that. And if you practice, by the time you're in the hospital and the surgery, you can just go to that place or some children are not interested in that, but we can call it anything you want. Um, but it's a way of literally distracting yourself. And so kids can do that actually pretty early, like even age six, parents can teach them to do that. Now, back to parents, you know, I'm thinking again, it is so hard to see your child in pain. Oh, right? yes. I mean, the child has anxiety, the parent has normal anxiety. Mm-hmm. What would you advise them to be, to figure out how to help themselves so they can help their child? Hmm. That's a hard it's, question. I'm sorry. It's, but it's tough. Hard. It's tough. I've been in that situation. Is there any resource for parents, like child life to parent life? Is there parent life? Yes. So the best resource really about this is child life because they do amazing things and they help the parents help the kids. Okay. If it's a, it's what it's called an elective surgery, that doesn't mean it's not a necessary surgery, but what right. it means is it's electively timed. Like, okay, you have scoliosis, you're going to need the surgery, but we don't, it's not an emergency. We can, we're going to do it in two months and you have time to sort of prepare and you know what's going on. Some people, more knowledge is better. Some people, knowledge gets them more anxious. So you have to know yourself. Um, But yes, there are many resources for us. We also recommend a tour. Uh, We have a video tour so that families can get comfortable with the hospital environment if need be. And I think knowing the steps and what's going to happen next is is helpful to parents. But it is just hard to see your uh, your child in pain. I don't know that there's a fix for that really, to be honest. Um, but just to know that you're doing what you think is best for your kid. And if you feel like the pain's not well controlled, tell the nurse, if it's, you're still doesn't seem like something's right, you know, that needs to be escalated to the doctor if they're not around and, and so on. And so parents are great advocates for their children because they know them best. And so it's just like we talked about before with hepatitis B vaccine or vitamin K. Parents are really trying to do what they think is Mm -hmm. best and they're their child's advocate. So at the same time, the people in the hospital are there because they care about children. So it's not adversarial. An advocate in this way is like kind of speaking for a kid who may not be able to speak for themselves. And that's just effective communication. It's a type of communication. It's not that the doctor refused this, the nurse wouldn't let him have. It's not like that. We're trying to all work together or it shouldn't be that way. Um, So this is an advocate, like you're your child's best communicator and you're the interpreter as the parent. So it's good to stay calm so you can be the interpreter. Right. It really, really is. And I love that you're talking about the parent being the child's best advocate because that's, we're getting towards the end and I want to end with that. And I think it's so true, but I think it can be confusing when you're in a hospital and there's a million people, you know, going around taking care of your child, what do you think is a good chain of command if a parent has concerns and they feel like they're not able to get them addressed? So really the person, the people always think about the doctors, but (laughs) the person that you have for 12 hours at a time at your bedside is the child's Mm -hmm. nurse. Mm -hmm. So, and nurses are 
well, our nurses, I know most nurses are amazing. They're mm -hmm. really, especially pediatric nurses. Can you imagine taking care of children in pain all the time? Um, that, that is a, that's a hard thing to do. So they are trying to help. And I feel like a lot of our nurses are tremendous advocates and they will go right up the chain and, um, and figure out who needs to be you know, called next if something is not going well. Um, so I think that is a little confusing in some hospitals because like I said, some, some patients will be seen by maybe 20 doctors in a day. Um, you know, each team will have like four doctors. And if they have an anesthesiologist, a surgeon, a pediatric hospitalist, and maybe one other specialist there, that's just a lot of doctors. Um, and it's hard to know who to ask. And so one thing that parents can say is, okay, who is my quarterback? Like who's, who's in charge of everything, but that surgeon that you, the lovely surgeon you met in the office who did the surgery, um, they are not actually in the hospital 24 seven. And so they have designated these things to, to other people who are pretty well-trained. And so your attending surgeon is not going to be answering the phone at two in the morning because, you know, of a pain issue that will get escalated though to the pediatric hospitalist who's there or the senior, um, you know, surgical person, but the attending actually doesn't do is not there all the time is what I'm trying to say, the attending surgeon. So you just have to find out who is your person for that shift and how do you get in touch when you have a concern? It's usually right, I'm not put a, direct. Yeah. Right. I'm going to put a plug for your child's pediatrician. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Good point. Because <laughs> we do a lot of this and we yes. will work with hospitalists. Yes. Um, it is so hard often to get, say, the surgeon that yes. may not be the right person. We make it the resident. Yeah. We make it the nurse. I mean, yep. it's not as important as finding someone who is medically savvy enough who mm -hmm. can help you advocate. Because That's it can a be really good really point. It's really hard mm -hmm. on your own. It can be really hard. Right. Right. And I think sometimes it's a communication something. And the, exactly, the your own pediatrician can say, well, what are you seeing and what are you saying? And it's also hard for the community pediatrician because they're not seeing what we're seeing if they're not in the hospital. So, but I think it's nice to have someone to bounce things off of. At the same time, it can get confusing if there's someone who doesn't, who's not physically there, but they may just help the parent understand and the parent trusts the community pediatrician. And that's really helpful. I, again, have had pediatricians call me, um, definitely to say, you know, mom is concerned about this. And I'll say, sure, I'll be happy to go speak with her. Um, so we're happy always to partner with community pediatricians. Uh, we'd like to just, we're there. So our, in our hospital, we're, there's an attending pediatrician 24 seven. And so we'd be happy to come to the bedside to address these concerns. Right. And even if your, your pediatrician isn't available, like mm -hmm. you've given us other people, it's like you said, find your person, find mm -hmm. someone who can be there and, and help you do that advocacy work because yes, you're your child's best advocate, but you have to take care of yourself as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it may be the social worker. It may be mm -hmm. the nurse manager who comes by. It may be the child life specialist. We have a lot of times the child life specialist will say, you know, mom is really concerned this and this, and they'll let us know. And so then we, or even the chaplain, so anyone who comes into the room is someone you can ask for help um, and they'll try to get the best person to help if they're not equipped.
Right. And there are even other people we're not going to get into, you know, there are so many people who mm. I think there are patient care advocates, there are community organizations that have. Oh, advocates. sure. So there, yes. there are many, many people that do that. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have to thank you so much. We could be talking about this, so many aspects of this all night. Yes. <laughs> right. And I'm thinking of all the people I didn't say, like physical therapists, the physical therapists so are many. really good. Yeah. yeah. There are so many, there yeah. are so many, but you know, like you said, we can't say it enough times that you're always your child's best advocate. You really mm-hmm. are. Don't be afraid to get the support you need. Take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And listen to like when yeah. someone's trying to, you know, make sure you take care of yourself because when you're calm, you'll be able to have a, be an, a more effective advocate and, right. and, and get some sleep. <laughs> take right, turns. Right. <laughs> right. Take turns, get sleep, get all the support, get people to cook for you, you know, everything possible. Right. Mm-hmm. And even it may be emotional support for you. I was hoping you would have a parent life specialist, but I don't think there is such a thing. Well, the child life specialists do a pretty good job and the social workers can also help as well. Right. So reach out for that. I think that that's really, really good advice. And I have to thank you so, so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure. I'm hopefully helped some other parents out there. I think it's awesome. And I'm excited to finally have talked to a hospitalist. (laughs) (laughs) Now we can check that off. Yes. Well, we're going to have to come back and talk about the other things you do, but I'd be happy to next time. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.